Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, we have Tristan Harris on the podcast. We're going to cover some topics that I'm quite passionate about, but perhaps are a little bit left field from the previous topics we've covered on this podcast before. I'm going to get into that in a second, but first let me introduce Tristan. Tristan is a design thinker, philosopher, and founder. He's the leader of the movement for Time Well Spent, and you can go to his website at timewellspent.io to align technology and media with our humanity. We'll talk a little bit about that. Tristan was a design ethicist and product philosopher at Google until 2016, and he did a lot of interesting work there uh, around people's attention, well-being, and behavior. And he's been featured in magazines like Atlantic Magazine, Economist, Wired, New York Times, Der Spiegel, and a bunch of more, which, you know, just a testament to a lot of the great uh, resonance that his work has had with a lot of people. So thanks for joining us today, Tristan. Um, and I look forward to this chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start off with first defining the role of the design ethicist and product philosopher, just so that we can build on that on the leading up to the time spent economy. Sure. Well, um, you know, this all started when um, I was at Google and made a presentation. Uh, so I'll give you a quick background, I guess, maybe on how I got to Google or where this came from. Uh, I was CEO and founder of a small startup called Apture, uh, which gave people these instant explanations on websites like The Economist or The New York Times so you could get information without leaving the page. And uh, we were talent acquired into Google. Uh, so we joined, you know, our team joined Google. And I was, um, you know, uh, thinking about leaving because I felt like at the end of the day, you know, there was this missing conversation to be had about how never before in history have essentially 50, you know, mostly male, mostly white, mostly men, um, uh, aged between 20 and 35 years old designers living in San Francisco, working at three tech companies had this profound influence on what a billion people think about every day and spend their attention and uh, how the, what is the moral responsibility of Google or Apple or Facebook in shaping how other people think, because they will inevitably shape in deep and profound ways how people think. And, um, you know, originally it was a kind of a manifesto and it ended up spreading around uh, Google like wildfire. When I released it, I gave it to 10 people, but when I clicked on the Google doc, you know, it shows you the number number of simultaneous visitors. And uh, there was 300 or so within you know 24 hours and then 500. Um, and it spread all around the company and led to basically get being carved out some space to research and understand design ethics. What is the way to think about how to ethically or morally you know, persuade uh, other people's attention to steer them in one way and, and not another. And how do you think about that? And uh, how is that ecosystem evolving? Excellent. And one of the things that uh, you mentioned when you were describing that was the skew towards a certain demographic. And another element is the psychology behind how to get people to interact with product. Maybe you can kind of break those two separately and share a little bit about um, how those two things can be evolved uh, as, as part of a conscientious effort that a company has. How can you have an inclusive community and at the same time have a product that is not necessarily as, um, as hijacking? Yeah. 
Well, so um, there's there's really a couple things here. Um, so you mentioned there's a cultural uh, element or demographic element. Who are the people that are making these choices at tech companies and which ones? And then there's also kind of a business economy aspect, which is um, who is, um, you know, uh, or what, what are the incentives of different technology companies right now? Um, okay, so on the cultural element, first of all, let's make you know, a distinction between attention companies whose business models are to get as much attention from you as they possibly can. So this includes things like Netflix, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Snapchat. These are attention companies. Their entire business model depends on getting as much attention from possible as you, uh, from you as possible. And uh, there's no way that they can escape that because that's that's what they have to do. Okay. But then there's this other group of platform companies, which are Apple and Google, which sit between you and, uh, sorry, sit between, you know, a billion people's minds and then all these things that are vying for our attention. And the second group, this platform company group, are really kind of like this urban, these urban planners. They're, they're designing this invisible city that a billion people live inside of but don't know it, in which basically you know, we can navigate or not to the kinds of choices that we want to make in our lives. And, you know, in our path are essentially all these apps and websites that want our attention as we get to places we want to go. So uh, the opportunity uh, is for platform companies like Apple and Google, who are the urban planners, to do a much better job, like in the same way that kind of Jane Jacobs revolutionized and thought a lot, you know, very deeply about what makes a city very human, what makes a, a city livable, what makes a livable city. She studied New York and Greenwich Village in the 1960s and kind of, you know, diagnosed what are these elements that make a great neighborhood, a great city great in terms of sidewalk width and uh, stoops on the sidewalk and eyes on the street, things like that. You know, where are those people inside of Apple and Google? So first of all, from a cultural perspective, you mentioned demographics. You know, how much do these designers at Apple and Google see themselves as urban planners, see themselves as uh, people who are organizing this environment, essentially, of, 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 of media that want our attention. And I would say that oftentimes they're really beholden to competing with each other on just releasing the next set of great features, uh, you know, uh, uh, on phones, bigger cameras, bigger screens, and not, you know, organizing this more social-oriented uh, purpose of how do we organize the city to work better for people. And also their backgrounds, like you mentioned, uh, demographic-wise, you know, these are mostly 20 to 35-year-old, um, you know, computer science designer, human-computer interaction, graphic designer, illustrator, you know, uh, visual interaction designers, not people who have, say, a background in how do you organize a billion people's life choices. You know, that's a, it's a very different kind of way of thinking. Um which is not their fault. It's just a matter of, you know, that's kind of what where we're at right now. So I think within Google, uh, in, just in the work now, is just how do you get people to see themselves as, as a different kind of role? They're, they're not actually interaction designers. They're urban planners. Um, and what are the, what's the vocabulary or like kind of invisible atomic units of building up these like great livable attentional cities? Um, so that's one aspect we can go into more. And the other aspect you mentioned is the business model. All these attention to companies, you know, the designers working at those companies really don't do just plain design anymore. Um, what used to be called design, which is really just making things work for people in an empowering way, often just gets subsumed into what will get people to use the product the most. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, hiding of this fact because mission statements are so persuasive 
at telling us that, you know, we're making the world more open and connected or we're helping people watch the shows they love. You know, those things are true, but the fundamental way that these companies measure success is by maximizing the amount of tension that they get. Uh, and so that's, that's how I see the world kind of splitting up. So I think one of the things that I really love about your content is that it really highlights how we are being manipulated. You know, there's a lot of different things in your number one blog post around how people are hijacked. But the fundamental question that it begs as a listener who is perhaps a founder building a product is, well, I, I kind of rely on these things. Are you basically espousing something that only the, the large companies in the world can, can really tackle as part of a corporate social responsibility thing? Um, or am I relinquishing really having a chance of succeeding and getting the kind of traction I need by espousing some of these things like, you know, interruptions or being an interruption economy type app or, um, you know, bundling reasons or, or coming up with something where there are inconvenient choices. You know, these things that you mentioned in your blog post, I mean, is this like a lofty goal that just really does not apply to an early stage startup? Well, so it really is a great question and it really depends on the kind of startup, um, and the kind of business that they're trying to build. So if you're trying to build like a consumption business or getting people to watch, I don't know, some kind of different set of TV shows or video content or educational content on a phone, then you're stuck playing the attention game. And and that might just be the world that you're living in. Um, and I, uh, you know, I would encourage anyone in that, in that game to really examine, you know, what is it that I'm really trying to do from a business perspective? And what am I trying to do from a social good perspective? And where is there currently any misalignment between those two things? And am I willing to see, you know, what that misalignment is? Um, I think that what this really, what this conversation really is about is that the best way to get people's attention is to be more persuasive or better at hijacking, you know, uh, the psychological biases of people's minds. So, you know, I always use this example of, you know, if YouTube, some product manager at YouTube figures out that if, if we make it autoplay the next video after a countdown, after a five or 10 second countdown, and that increases the amount of time people spend on YouTube by five to 10%, that means someone else's attention in the attention economy went down. That means Facebook or, or Netflix lost some market share, probably, because the attention market is so full, so saturated. And so then, therefore, Facebook has to figure out, we got to autoplay videos and newsfeed as you scroll, because that will increase or let us even hold on to our position in the attention economy. And then that startup that you're mentioning, that's a you know, venture funded thing has to figure out, well, for us to even get in the game, we've got to be more persuasive. So let's add some slot machines. Let's add some social obligation. Let's add some, uh, you know, some inconvenient choices uh, to, to stop people from making choices we don't want them to make. And and that is inevitably the real conversation here. It's not even really about technology. It's about an uncovering of this invisible language of persuasion uh, in which we're escalating like a nuclear arms race, you know, who's better at getting the attention. Um, and so, you know, in terms of advice for startups, uh, if you're in the attention game, unfortunately, even though I'd like to be optimistic, you're really stuck playing a certain game. And I think it's important to examine, is that a game that's worth playing or I want to play or, you know, what, what's the kind of balance of how much attention is enough and can I get there with means that I'm happy about? Um, you know, a lot of the time well spent companies, we can talk more about time well spent later, are companies that have different business models uh, or who are not trying to maximize how much time people spend. A simple example would be something like uh, Calendly, which helps people ske schedule meetings uh, with each other without actually exchanging emails. 
uh, or Doodle or you know equivalent to something like Doodle, you know you pay a subscription fee, and the thing doesn't have to send you more email. It doesn't have to get you to use it. It just says here's this passive thing that makes your life better and saves you time and helps you live your life. Uh, so I think it, it paves the way for more opportunities like that and and, and fewer for attention to com- uh, companies. But we can go more into that. Yeah, and so I think if I whittle down. Uh, sorry, whittle up actually the, the argument to the, the most abstract form of it, which is determining what the ultimate social good that we're optimizing around for here, right? In the context of this conversation, we're talking about time, people's time, and that's a form of social good. But one of the great things that you were talking about in the panel where we met, um, you know, about four months ago was around resource management in general, you know, and if we abstract this out from time and we now apply it to physical goods, um, fuel, uh, minerals, anything like that. I guess I open up the question to you on: Do you have a design ethics for that applies to more than just software and internet companies? One that applies to, for example, uh, a tuna, a tuna or a food company that overfishes because it needs to de- deliver shareholder returns, even though yeah. it's taking tuna past the the tipping point of of over farming. And how do you how do you think about uh, extending that sort of calendly or the sort of the hi- the highlighting of good practices across multiple areas because time management is just one of them. This applies to many. For sure, yeah. I mean, this, this is essentially a new category of uh, a sort of an externality or area of social responsibility that's worth caring about. We didn't put it in the list before. You know, we've previously had, like you said, you know, CO2 pollution or overfishing, or these are sort of negative externalities that emerge from businesses doing what's good for business, which mean more profits, but will create collectively game theoretic conditions where the competition creates uh, more pollution or more environmental destruction or uh, cheaper wages or unfair treatment of workers or things like that. And this is obviously related to movements like the Flexible Purpose Corporation or the B Corporation movement um, or public benefit corporations where you're trying to combine the social good with business, the engines of business. Um, So in terms of, you know, how does it apply? in, In issues like overfishing, for example, my understanding is that you know, what, what you try to do is create mechanisms for actors to coordinate, for businesses to coordinate their behavior so that each of them can do more of what they're good at without creating that negative externality of overfishing. And that usually creates, there's different ways to do that. One is like Geneva Convention of sort of shared shared sort of rules or norms by which we compete. And we all agree that, you know, this is the limited plot of, you know, space that we're going to be given when we're doing this fishing. Um, you know, in the case of technology companies, you can imagine there being sort of like a, uh, you know, sized neighborhoods of attention in the attention economy where uh, Facebook is competing for its share of attention, in which the user may be dragging a slider and controlling how how big of an attentional footprint they want Facebook to have in their life and how big of an attentional footprint they want Netflix to have in their life. Uh, and and have people compete within those footprints so that you don't get this race to the bottom of the brainstem uh, condition, which is what we have now. Yeah, and, and that's and, and I guess that's one of the challenges with anything. Like you said, Geneva Convention, and Geneva Convention means a bunch of people came together. And to some extent, it sounds like time well spent is a collection of designers and founders who have des- who've come up with like a standard and said like time is important. Let's create a standard around that. Um, what what um what are the kind of other initiatives, at least from a software and, and sort of Silicon Valley venture world that you've seen? 
Well, also just to extend um, what you just mentioned, it's it's not just a standard for time or how much time to take. It's really a standards for persuasion, right? Um, it's it's basically what are the norms of persuasion? Should you know, for example, you know, and this is what we talked about a little bit when we met uh, in November. It was mm-hmm. actually the day of the election. So. Part of the attention economy is, say, the news and media economy. You have the New York Times or the Washington Post competing for the finite amount of attention people are, are going to spend in their lives on news. And so mediums in there and blogs are in there and different news websites are in there. And they're all trying to persuade people, hey, you know, we've got news for you. Now, let's say some new actor comes along and they realize that, hey, if I just actually lie to someone about the news and I just confirm their suspicions about something they would like to believe to be true, and this is more effective at getting attention, let's just say it works on people, it works at getting your attention, that means that the other news websites get less and less news, right? So the more news you're seeing that's the fake news, the less you're seeing that's the other news. And there's no Geneva Convention about uh, this, these different forms of, of uh, you know, essentially persuading people. And this is a very extreme form of persuasion on the fake news side because you might have someone who's deliberately lying. And then this opens up whole different philosophical fronts of discourse around, you know, uh, you know, what does it mean for something to be fake? What's the different gradations? Uh, and how can we basically create game theoretic conditions where, you know, you don't win by lying? And Facebook is doing that a little bit with its some of its very light, inter, you know, interventions on that front. But I think, you know, when you think about this from a persuasion perspective, are there other game theoretic norms of persuasion that different apps could choose? So, for example. Um, you know, there's certain more deliberate slot machine-like interfaces inside of Twitter and Facebook that could be uh, rolled up. So one very concrete example, instead of making this abstract, is today, by default, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn all have an incentive to drip out notifications one by one. Because when they drip it out, uh, that creates um, a, uh, you know, more of a slot machine-like conditioning. It's more frequently the case. Your phone is buzzing more frequently with smaller, more bite-sized, smaller ask uh, notifications that want you to uh, come back. And instead, you know, one sort of game theoretic thing you could do is say, hey, there's this new norm we should have, which is that we're all going to bundle up notifications by default to deliver at the end of the day, except if there's something that's sort of, you know, more urgent or something like that based on some norm. And that would be something that all of them could do that would clean up the pollution of the attention economy. So instead of everybody dripping out notifications, you get fewer and and more batched uh, interruptions. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, it completely makes sense. But is this effectively relying on the, a government, if you will, to come up with uh, an initiative here. If you look at the voluntary carbon credit market and the mandatory carbon credit market, you know, the voluntary one's mostly a marketing effort, really, um, because there yeah. isn't really a, 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 a sort of push for everyone to, to be involved. And, the, and the, the one that is more required is one for heavy industries and, and industries where, you know, you do have to go into economic trade-offs between pollution right. and stuff. And it sounds to me like a lot of these ideas are critical for the evolution of our society. It's just that, you know, things like, as you mentioned, fake news seems like the next level of getting the internet, uh, to, to be more inclusive is to sort out these issues, but it doesn't sound like it's something that's going to come from a volunteer effort or, or do you think that right. it can come from a voluntary effort? Well, you know, first of all, if we just change the tone of, of even this conversation, as you just said, this is really an existential problem. You know, I, I feel like, you know, there's a way this stuff can get recast as, what's the big deal? What's the harm? We're just a little bit more distracted than we were before. But actually, 
what we're really talking about is a breakdown of our epistemological environment, uh, a breakdown of how our mind can focus on and concentrate on what's true, what's real, um, our, a breakdown of our ability to hear and talk to each other with open minds and have conversations with each other when we you know, are led to distrust each other with fake news. This is a really, really serious problem in the same way that, say, climate change and CO2, you know, massive CO2 pollution is a serious problem. Um, so just to name that, I think, is, is really important. And I, and I think mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. I think there's a really important conversation about, uh, you know, it's nice to be have voluntary, you know, we'll sort of cut ourselves off uh, a little bit from some of the attention we're currently getting just because we're nice guys and we will voluntarily coordinate. And I think that's wishful thinking. You know, I think, like you've said, uh, it's not as motivating as uh, external coercive uh, measures. And the question is really, how do you, how would we collectively, you know, don't count on me to do this. I would love, I'm trying to do this, but I think we need to all figure out. And if you have anybody in your audience working at the EU or uh, other organizations, like how can we create conditions that, that enable companies to do what the human beings who work at those companies would want us to do, but they don't have some kind of motivating mechanism to make it happen. You know, I think we talked about this in, in Lisbon, but uh, you know, I've heard from a lot of engineers and designers at these companies who want to work on more of the social good aspects, you know, who want to prioritize, you know, for example, anti-bullying, cyberbullying type stuff. And, you know, companies like Facebook have already done work in that area, uh, but they have those teams who try to do that more social good, human good oriented stuff are under-resourced and don't get the priority compared to the features that say add more growth or build advertiser revenue or engagement. Um, so, so what is the mechanism that will be uh, not just enabling space for that kind of work, but actually prioritizing it? And actually, we can talk about a couple of interventions there, but I think just to name that, I think you're right that we do need something that's like more mandatory. Uh, and the problem is it requires a coordination of a lot of different actors in the attention economy. Um, although it really, you know, the government here is not really the government. It's kind of Apple and Google because Apple and Google being the mayors, these two sort of privately held company mayors of this attention economy city could have a more cooperative, you know, uh, discussion about how do we have representational democracy inside of this attention economy and what, what are some of those norms? The first step seems to me that getting them to admit that there is a responsibility that they have because many of them, as we know from Zuckerberg's comments and uh, you know, when the fake news thing broke out, I don't think that the tech industry fully admits the level of responsibility that there is on, on, on their behalf yet. Hmm. So if you, were to, if you were to break this down the way that the ecology... Uh, industry broke down carbon as the main responsible agent. So by breaking it down to carbon alone, it was easier to sort of take action across a multiple of things based upon the currency of carbon impact. If, yep. if we were to try to whittle this down, you know, a reductionist approach towards everything, including cyberbullying, uh, attention economy, and in, you were to articulate something that the listeners could walk away would be like, if I, at least as a start, voluntarily started promoting these uh, and, and this mantra. Yeah. What what would those be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think a really good metaphor for this, just like you named the carbon, is, and I've said this before, although it's really nice to package it all up into this podcast, is, uh, you know, how do you price the externality here? First of all, what are we naming as the bad thing that we want to reduce? Um, and so with with energy, uh, sorry, not with energy, with with you know, pollution, we have carbon. It's a 
you know, a heuristic, a shortcut way of, of quantifying some of the quote unquote bad that we want to manage or reduce uh, economically. Um, so, you know, what is that in this persuasion economy? Uh, well, one way to think about it is that um, as persuasion goes up, what's lost? What's the thing that goes down when persuasion goes up? And it's essentially freedom to make your own choice. You know, the more something is persuading you to do something, the less felt sense of agency or autonomy you have in making the choices that you would like to make. Meaning, if you walk into the, this doorway, which is the doorway between you and the internet, the sort of gravitational force of where the internet starts to steer you and how much it steers you versus how much you steer the internet, uh, it feels stronger and stronger and stronger over time. So imagine there's some way to quantify some sense of uh, autonomy that people have, which again is hard to do. Uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. So as you're building your products, you know, think about where are you steering people uh, directionally and where does that misalign with what they would want or what autonomy they would have? Uh, and how, how can I, you know, make that better for people just talk, you know, through goodwill. Um, another area that, um, you can think about is where am I creating pollution in, uh, a few different domains in someone's life. So for example, um, let's say that, uh, I use this example actually sometimes. So let Facebook, here's a really tiny one. So Facebook, uh, on an event invitation, you have, you know, you get invited to an event by your friend and it has these three buttons. Yes, maybe, or no. Right. And, um, so you, you know, what's, what's wrong with this interface? Well, let's say your best friend invites you to their birthday party and you hit no. Right. So when you see the no button, it's not that you are telling your friend, no, you would just, you just can't make it to their event. Right. But the fact that they title the button, no, creates this pollution, this little miniature pollution in your timeline of your life where your thoughts are going to say, oh no, what are they going to think if I say no? And their, um, uh, their felt sense is going to feel uh, like they are uh, uh, a little bit stressed out because they're... Um, yeah, so no creates pollution across you know, your friend's feed and your, your sort of social anxiety as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually not the feed. So I'm just trying to point to like, what, how do we think about what is the thing that's being polluted? Yeah. So let's just jump into the skull, into the mind of that user who has to say no. And we're trying to figure out phenomenologically for them, what is the felt sense of pollution that happens? So one is that they simply can't go and they don't want to tell their friend no, because the fact that their only choice on life's menu to decline is to say no, which causes them stress which makes them think thoughts they don't have to think. And that likely leads a good percentage of them to then have to comment in the, not the bottom and say, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry, I can't make it, I'm going to be out of town. They feel the need to explain themselves, right? Mm. So with this one tiny design choice, the text on a button that says no, you know, 1.5 billion people you know, in the next couple of days will probably have to hit that button. And that's going to create this micro amount of pollution in their life that just doesn't have to exist. It's totally unnecessary and, and by accident. And I say this because Facebook just a few, I think it was like six months or a year ago, uh, they changed it. And they changed the no button from no to can't go. And can't go provides just a little bit more of a match between people's likely uh, reasons for not being able to go and the level of politeness that they would need to experience. And it creates less pollution in their felt sense experience. So they can simply say can't go without having thought, felt anything. 
nor do they need to explain themselves as, as frequently. Some people still will, but we've reduced that. So that's an example of we're kind of cleaning up some of these residual pollutive timelines in people's lives. And this matters less for startups as much as it matters for big companies, because big companies at their scale, that's when these things start really adding up. But that's one way to think about, you know, imagine there is some sort of agency that's kind of mapping out where are these areas of timeline pollution occurring? Where are people thinking things that aren't true or concerned or feeling stress about things that aren't real um, or magnified? You know, where are all these distortions and how can we basically say, you know, what can we do to clean it up? Okay. And that makes sense. If I keep those two thoughts in mind, you know, you started off with um, reviewing things that uh, sort of jeopardize freedoms. And then you also mentioned where are you creating pollution in people's minds, pollution in people's domains and in, in their social networks. But you brought up an interesting point, which is uh, in your example, the concept of a no in Facebook. And, uh, and it got me started thinking a little bit about the kinds of uh, people that are interfacing with these products globally and the challenges that as a designer and as a software developer you have when dealing with different cultures. So, for yep. example, with carbon, it's clear. It's in China, it's carbon, and in Honduras, it's carbon, and in London, it's carbon. But, you know, the concept of a, a blunt no in Russia might be very different than a soft no or a non-existent no in Japan. And totally. so how, how is this, a, is this like, a, I'm not saying it's not worth discussing the ethics of these things, because I think in the discussion is where people get better. But at the same time, is it uh, ultimately like chasing a tail here? Because there is not a clear marker the way there is for carbon. Well, I think that that's kind of what this conversation is about overall, in the sense that um, environmental pollution would be easier to name, say, specific emissions or chemicals that are now in the environment that we simply don't want in the environment. You know, we don't want arsenic in the environment, so let's just reduce arsenic. But when it comes to human values of persuasion, it's much subtler. And because we don't have a vocabulary for it, it's almost like a new chemistry, right? We have the periodic table and we know all these, uh, you know, elements that might not, you know, these structures and molecules that might be bad for people. Um, we don't actually have periodic table for persuasion that tells us these are, are, are elements or design elements that are causing some different kinds of pollution in people's lives. Um, and that is going to be culturally dependent. Um, that, that might seem like a really small, innocuous example. A better example that really makes this clear, though, is what's the problem with uh, a false fact uh, being reported on by, say, a major news organization like Reuters, even? You know, these things seep out. Someone, Trump says something, and so there's some hearsay, and then a major news publication, I think this happened recently with Washington Post, uh, I forgot the exact fact, but they, you know, they said something that was false that Trump had done uh, that didn't actually happen. And it, and it created a lot of stress. And of course, they fact-checked it uh, later, and they tried to do the cor correction. But if we're thinking about pollution, there's a kind of epistemological pollution that, that's created by that one moment. Uh, because uh, in that moment, someone reads that article, they're spending time, energy, uh, they're feeling things and believing things, and all of this stuff gets placed on their timeline. And you could say, well, it's okay because we're going to correct it later. There's this another separate moment where that person has to read the fact-checked version or something like that. But that takes more time, more energy, and, 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 and so on. And if we had a choice, we could clean up those timelines and say we'd be better off rewarding actors who had never said that in the first place. And so, for example, you could keep like a, an epistemological soundness score, which says, you know, how much do these websites have to do corrections? Uh, and what are websites that don't have to do corrections? And how do we reward the websites that might take longer to report on the facts 
uh, but get them right more often and, uh, and, and favor them in news feeds and Google search results and things like that um, through that long-term reputational score. And that would also clean up a different kind of pollution, which is epistemology. Uh, and that, that's a little bit clearer, at least, than um, the subtler cultural elements. But as you can see, I mean, this, this gets complicated quickly. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, you're familiar with Lawrence Lessig from Creative Commons, potentially. For sure, yeah. And I think what he did a really good job of was creating a very simple, I mean, it's, it's actually quite complex in some ways. Um, and, but it's, it's more complex than a carbon market, but it's a very simple UI around getting people and, and a movement around how to share. Do you think that the evolution of time well spent is to create something like a creative commons that highlights like if you go through the Creative Commons website UI, you know, there's a lot of little click and, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Is, is the intention of this? Is the intention of that? Which then kind of you have to self audit and then it says like, this is what it is. Do you think that that's the evolution of this? Is that like an ambition that you guys have or? You know, I think it's a great question. I think Creative Commons is a, a decent metaphor as well. Um, I, you know, I think Larry, uh, Lessig would tell you and other people who worked on Creative Commons, that's, was really a slog uh, and it's a long game and it took a long time. And I think there's questionable end results, not in the sense that they haven't provided tremendous value, but you know, it's, it's a hard thing to try and um, shift culture that way. Uh, and it took a long time. Um, I am always on the lookout for what the smartest way to go about this is. Uh, I don't think that there's ever clear answers about these kinds of perverse market incentives when they show up. Um, and I'm really interested in what the fastest route to get there is. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned some good good possible tools. Uh, imagine labeling interfaces that sort of document uh, areas of pollution uh, on time well spent. So you could click on some directory of products and just get a certain sense of the most majorly used products in areas where that pollution is showing up uh, and creating some scores. Uh, you know, we have, for example, now a little partnership with an app called Moment for iOS, uh, in which if you install Moment, it tracks how much time you spend on your phone um, using some clever backgrounding tools. It also lets you screenshot your battery screen either once a day or once a week, and it'll parse or OCR the amount of time you spend in each app. And uh, it actually asks users at the end of, I think, a month or something like that to fill out a survey saying which of these apps are time well spent for you. So you can imagine getting uh, some kind of rating or score for which things people embrace and the time that they spend in the app and the way that it steers them to spend their time uh, and which ones that they feel less good about. And that can serve as a market feedback mechanism. Um, you know, I'd like to be more focused about which of these things will work because unfortunately some of the measurement tools are uh, not so accurate. Uh, unlike CO2 where you just kind of put up a sensor or something like that, there's some easier ways to measure the emission uh, from very clear sources. It's harder for both people to subjectively measure or to be as accurate uh, you know, in their, in their assessment. Um, but I think, you know, I, the, the meta point is I think creating this conversation, we're still at sort of step zero, unfortunately, mm. that we need to create a language for persuasion that it is happening. And the goals of technology companies are not fully aligned with people. And that's not because there's evil people, but just because we have some uh, slightly misaligned incentives. Um, so I think, you know, especially in the short term with things like fake news and the way this is playing out in the attention economy, we, we need to get to a point where we accept that this is a problem and want to collectively clean it up. It's like in the few years before the EPA, you know, how, how can we get that change of consciousness to happen? Mm. So, you know, th thank you, obviously, for sharing these these points and, and for um, spearheading this. And if you were to 
set out a call for action from the, the community that's listening to this podcast, what would the next steps be for them? You know, they, they can subscribe to your newsletter, but is there an upcoming event? Is there, um, um, uh, similar to the way that some of these other initiatives bring people together to sort of map out what's coming next? Is there any, is there a sort of commission that's coming up where, where, you know, people are volunteering for this or is there anything like that? Yeah. You know, um, so we'd like to put on some kind of workshop and bring or even conference to bring people together to talk about it. There's different groups, different constituents. There's obviously bringing the individual app developers together to talk about and share practices and design patterns and things like that. And then there's a separate kind of convening for platform companies, uh, getting companies like Apple and Google to talk to each other and create shared norms. So those things eventually need to happen. We haven't put any dates uh, in, but that's definitely on the roadmap. Um, uh, I think, you know, obviously, staying. Cre- I think creating this conversation with with people in the industry. I think that one of the most important short term things is simply saying that these old narratives about technology is neutral and it's human nature just amplified, and we're not responsible for any of it. That just has to go away. It's just not true, uh, and it's not you know again an accusation against people. It's just recognizing that there are things that persuade people. Uh, that may collectively add up to something we don't want. And I think that change in consciousness has to happen. So, you know, whether it's through the media or videos or podcasts or the uh, interviews or the article that I wrote on how technology hijacks people's minds, you know, share this stuff around so that this this belief system, I think, changes, uh, you know. And then we're also collecting some of the time well-spent app examples. We have some on there now, some examples of time well-spent companies that have at least uh, some alignment with some of the values. And if you have something like that that you're working on that you think should be on there, you know, get in touch with uh, Time Well Spent. You can go to the website. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a multi-pronged effort. We're still, I think, figuring out priorities and also fundraising for how the best way to, you know, advance this topic is. But even things like this really help. So thank you. No, no worries. I, there's um, There's an idea that I had with regards to how to tackle the early movement of this. And when you look for customers that need this the most, sometimes by identifying those customers, you get early traction. And I was, and I was circulating back to parents and thinking that, you know, if you're a developer that's making products for, let's say a typical techie guy in Silicon Valley, the motivation that techie guy has to like optimize their attention deficit disorder is probably low relative to all the other things they need to do. But a parent might be more conscientious about how a child spends time and which apps have been time well spent certified. Is there is there um, any kind of initiative that could kick off on the basis that you're providing certification for parent-facing apps? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying and the um, need to focus on highly motivated audiences or rather find which are the highly motivated political constituent audiences. And parents obviously comes up a lot. Um, I'm most concerned about this on a practical level now with Snapchat, since it's about to go public and creating market precedents that, you know, it's okay to do some of the frankly manipulative things that Snapchat does, uh, that I think parents don't really see. Um, but you know, in terms of time well spent apps, I think one thing is that there's, there actually isn't an alternative for, uh, children, I think for a lot of these things that are more manipulative. So if you said, here are the design elements that make Snapchat more manipulative, you know, if all your friends are using it, you don't really have a choice but to use that if you're a teenager. Uh, and there isn't some alternative that is cleaner, still fun, but just not quite as uh, intention on getting you to use it every single day for as much as possible. Uh, so, you know, what are the alternatives out there? How can we reward the alternatives is, is one um, 
question. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I, and I think maybe if anybody's listening out there who is developing a parent app, I, I would encourage them to get in touch with you to figure out maybe yeah. how that maybe, maybe you have more visibility on, on which ones, which areas might be more interest. But, you know, do, do you think that this is something like a frog that's boiling itself very slowly uh, and that we're just not noticing that perhaps uh, this is of greater impact and that this is just a one-off or is this something that's been affecting us across different mediums over time and we're just not even knowing the impact of it? Well, it's just like that. I mean, like you said, with, with climate change and, and boiling frogs, uh, these these changes are so subtle and so um, beyond the existing vocabulary we have, meaning we don't have words to talk about cultural pollution or how this affects childhood development. Uh, it's not like we have a name for specific ways that, you know, one design feature changes a child's development or makes them care more about what others think of them and think of that as like social comparison pollution or something like that. And it's happening at such a slow, diluted level that it's very hard to see this problem. But, you know, we paid the price by waiting so long with climate change. I think we really can't wait for this. And I think, you know, the other thing that has to change is this, these, these pre-existing narratives that that media has always been this way, that we worried about when newspapers showed up on subways and people stopped talking to each other and we worried about, uh, you know, when television showed up and it would, uh, people would stop reading. And then people say, look, it turned out fine. You know, what's the big deal? But what that conversation misses is it didn't turn out fine. I mean, it, these media technologies like television totally changed politics, for example. And so the memes that win are not the memes that are true or the ones that actually can go into detail about about any level of detail about anything, but have turned things like, you know, presidential debates that used to last seven hours in the aid of Lincoln, <laughs> um, you know, into debates in which you say the Middle East, you know, your thoughts, you have one minute, right? I mean, that's a medium change that is not empowering for the kinds of things that we want. And, uh, you know, I think we really have to question, are these mediums that we're making really, truly fulfilling the things we care about? Or are we just telling ourselves that? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, we always like to finish with a few fun questions, uh, something completely random. Um, and I'm just randomly picking them from a list that I have here. Um, sure. How about uh, if you could undo one moment in your life, which one would it be? That's a really interesting question. Um, oh, it's so hard. Um, I think I spent too much time working on a company that wasn't going to work. Uh, that was the last company that we had that was talent acquired by Google. Uh, I wish somehow, and I don't know exactly what other choice I would have made, but I wish that we had um, either found a way to, um, you know, uh, you know, land successfully land the company and park it, uh, and an acquirer earlier, like three years earlier, uh, two years earlier. Um, after recognizing some fundamental issues with the business, I think that. Um, you know, there's a lot of really subtle motivations for me that played into working on the company, and uh, obviously ego and success and some amount of just wanting to make things work and just being committed to make something work, uh, that I was a little bit blind to what I didn't see at the time, which I think really informs actually my work now. Um, and uh, I wish I hadn't waited so long. I wish I was really more focused on, uh, you know, the limited time we have on Earth <laughs> to, uh, to, to do what I really care about. Yeah, fair enough. All right. If you were to do a citywide poll, what would you want to learn? Um, hmm. What I want to learn. Um, 
I think, some way of knowing people's private preferences that they don't express in public. Uh, when I think about the election and Trump, and I think about the fact that a lot of people can believe or desire things that they aren't willing to admit in public, I'd love to gather, uh, you know, the more the deeply held secret beliefs and desires that people have, because I think we need better ways of understanding and listening to each other. Yeah, fair enough. All right, the last one. Um, what is something you like that most people don't? Ah, very good question. I'll just say Brussels sprouts for now. I'm not sure if most people disagree with me, but I like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> that's great. Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I don't like Brussels sprouts. So yeah, that's definitely ah. a unique one. Um, well, that's excellent. Okay. Tristan, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to change the world one conversation at a time, at least for now, until we can get more of a quantified mechanism. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Hopefully this is getting the word out.